I'm going to be reading from John, uh, starting at uh, John 4. Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this, this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in the truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And then I'm going to skip down to uh, 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, 
many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Hey, bow your heads. God, we, we sit here in awe of you, enjoy, enjoy that we can come together and worship you, that we can sing praises to you. God, our hearts are full just knowing that here we belong. With you, we belong. With you, we found the truth for our lives. I pray that we would we would identify with the Samaritan woman in this story, Lord, that we would see our great need and our, just our absolute lostness, just our not knowing what's up from down without you, God, that we would be able to see that and we'd be able to just fall at your feet in praise of you today. Lord, I pray that I would be able to do justice to this text. In your son's name, amen. Um, so, as I'm, as I'm building the ark for this series, I'm constantly thinking about the Holy Spirit and what, it, what it's like to actually live in the presence of God. This idea that we've been talking about that we are as near to God as we will be now as in heaven just floored me. I, I've thought about it every single day. Because I live and I go, how is it that God is as present with me right now, right, as I'll be with him in heaven? How is that possible? How can I live in such a way that I'm, I'm living in the experience of God in my everyday life, a life that before that understanding, before that awakened in me, I didn't, I didn't live with that sense. So everything I'm doing from washing the dishes to taking my kids and dropping them off to school is in the presence of God and it, it's redefining how I live. It's redefining it because I stand and I say that the old things that used to be just normal and bereft of any meaning now have great meaning how what am i called to do what what is the right action where is god correcting me everything has significance everything and to me that was just an utter transformation in preaching this series to you all right in me just sitting down and actually grappling with not not how do i explain this but how do i live this how do I live with the presence of the Spirit? And of course, it takes us understanding and awakening to those things, which we do through Scripture. And that's something we established early on, right? That, that Scripture and the Word is guiding us, is the tool that God has given us, one of the primary tools for Him to speak to us. His words are recorded, and He speaks through them to us. And so then we have walked through different stories in the Bible, from the epistles, the letters, to, to Old Testament, right? Old Testament where God, God, the Spirit was not indwelling and God appeared in presence. Megan was just talking to the kids on the way. We are entering through the fog on Holgate. I don't know if any of you came from that side of town, but there's just this fog, right? And you enter it and you think, I'm going into the fog. And then you get in and it was just kind of like bright and like weirdly unfoggy. And she goes, do you, do you know that God used to appear as a fog? Right? And I was thinking, this is so wild that, that God would appear and his presence would be in things. But as we learned last week, 
Sometimes in those same things, his presence wasn't there, right? So his presence would come and go at his will. He's in charge. So how incredible of a gift is it that with the death of Jesus, we have his eternal gift of presence in us at all times. That's an incredible gift to actually realize that, to actually live knowing that you have something that was given momentarily at times through certain people and is now available to literally all of us who believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, I could just stop there. That floors me to actually live and think and breathe into that and go, okay, this is what I'm now living in. This is the gift I have. And so today I wanted to go to a New Testament story, a, a, a story in which before the Spirit is indwelling in everyone, the Spirit encounters a woman. The Spirit through Jesus, where the Spirit is indwelling, encounters a woman, right? And this is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. And as we talk about this, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this idea of biography and autobiography, right? One of the most successful recent memoirs, autobiographies, was Michelle Obama's Becoming, right? We know the people write a memoir when they've gone through enough of life to establish and say, I want to share what I understand meaning to be, right? What my struggle has been, what I believe I can share with you. And we as people grab onto memoirs, right? Some of you are big nonfiction buffs, right? I, I'm big into, I've, all of you know, and I'll tell you this again, World War II, right? So Churchill and these big figures where these, these memoirs are really important. You're trying to dive in and glean. How can... I am inspired by you. What do you have that I can learn so that I can become somebody with meaning and purpose or influence, right? That I can pick up something from your life that will help my life. That you somehow will be a compass for me to live by. But how many of us pick up the Bible like a memoir or a biography, which we are seeking and yearning to be inspired from and learn by one of the most pivotal, the most pivotal and important life ever lived. And the four biographies that were written. Jesus never wrote a word. He never wrote a memoir. There's no memoir of Jesus. We have four different accounts of people experiencing him, and we have their biographies. And as we're reading this, we are living and writing our own autobiographies, all of us every day. We're, we're just so aware of this. Why else would we struggle? Why else would we yearn for more? Why else would we wake up depressed or happy, right? Because we know there's significance in what we're doing. As parents, why else would we try and do better? Because we know we get one chance at this on this earth. We're writing it word by word by word, and we so desire to have a life full of meaning and purpose. And so I, I wanted to call this sermon The Holy Spirit and the Stories We Tell. Because I think as we're writing these stories, we're, we're conscious on one level, but we can't get the words right. The stories that we tell, we know they're far off from the story we want to be telling with our life. In fact, the words that come out of our mouth so often don't even remotely match up with what we've done. Take an average dinner conversation right, with two couples that get together. You as the partner to your spouse, those of you who are married, you know when they're telling the thing they wish they had been that week versus the thing they actually were that week. 
It's just clear as day to you. But to everyone on the other side of the table, they're just like, uh-huh, yeah, great. Oh, man, your guys' life sounds really wonderful. Or your guys' life sounds really horrible. And you're thinking, don't you remember, right? Like, don't you remember the good parts? Or don't you remember the... Like, but we go along because we know we do it too. The words that come out that we want to be our memoir, that we want to be our autobiography, don't line up, right? And so we tailor and we articulate and we curate from our social media feeds to, to our emails, to our communication, to our visits and choreographing those special visits with people, right? And getting just right. We choreograph all of it because we so, and it's not all bad, we just so desire to be more than we actually are. Deeply we desire. And here is a story of a woman who so desires to be something other than what she is. And she encounters another man, right, who sees the person that she is because of him. So let's get into it. This is a story of two outcasts. Now you might say, two outcasts, what do you mean? Well, there's an obvious outcast, right? There's this woman that, that has lived a life that is not appealing, right? That she's not proud of. But there's another outcast here because how does the story start? It says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. We might gloss over that, right? So I need to give a little context. In chapter three, and in the preceding chapters in John, right, what we find is that John the Baptist was baptizing people. Remember when Jesus got baptized by John, right? He's been baptizing all of these people to bring in this new era. Jews who don't need to be clean, he's cleaning them. And the, the religious powers are saying, what are you doing? And they see this movement rising. Well, then what happens is Jesus' disciples here clearly are baptizing. John explains it to us. He says, he says now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So Jesus left. He left Judea and went once more back to God. So what happens here? What's happening here is that the Pharisees are saying, oh, we were concerned about John, who they will eventually behead, right? They said, we're concerned about him, but look at this guy. And they're actually starting to keep track of the baptisms. They're trying to monitor who's the bigger threat here, right? They're trying to figure out who do we need to go after. And Jesus sniffs this out, and he goes, I'm not playing this game. This isn't what I came here to play. I don't fit in with these crowds. So Jesus, if, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is constantly moving. This guy's just moving all over the place, right? Constantly going to different places. Yes, this is a way for him to get the word out, but it's also a way for him to just kind of be evading and stepping out of step with the religious elite, right? He's trying to keep a low profile early in his ministry. So what he does is he leaves. In a way, Jesus is an outcast, right? He doesn't fit in with the social powers. He knows that he's not fitting in. He knows that he has been branded as a misfit, right? And eventually, he is going to be condemned for it. But for now, he is just with his band roaming, and so they get to this place in Samaria. And in order, in order to go from Judea, the map of Israel is such that Judea is in the bottom, right? And you have to travel through Samaria to get up to Galilee. And so Judea is where Jerusalem is. And then there's the River Jordan. And up here, there's two lakes, right? The Sea of Galilee is up here. And so he has to travel. The shortest way is for him to travel through Samaria. So he does. He wants to get there quickly. He goes through Samaria. He comes to this town called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. And there is a ritualistic well there. There's a very significant Jewish 
well there. But here's the thing. The well is not even close to the, all of the other wells you would have in, this, in the city of Sychar. So with this woman coming out to this well, you can tell a few things. One, she had a lot closer places to go to get water. So why is she coming out to this one? That's, that's the first clue, right? Makes sense that Jesus might not be in the city proper, right? Jews and Samaritans did not get along. So he's, he's going by this well, and he sees this Samaritan woman. Why is she here? And that's his first clue, right? And, and you might, to me, it's, it's as obvious of a clue as when you go down and, and you sit down with somebody to get a drink, right? And they sit down, and the first thing they do is they order a drink, they drink the entire thing, slam it down, and order another one, right? What do you know in that situation? You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to know an obvious clue with that person. That person is having a bad day, right? A really bad day. There might be other things going on, but you can, you can just from that one clue pick up a lot of things. And so Jesus sees this woman in the middle of the day, in the hottest part of the day, not in the morning or the evening when you would normally go to get water, not with any other women that we know of, right? And here she is, an outcast. And Jesus, the outcast, sits down with her and he says, will you give me a drink? And this is the first turning point. This is the first point at which her biography smashes up against his story, right? These two life stories intersect and I think there's something compelling here just, just on the surface, which is that we might not identify these two people as having anything in common on the first reading of this. Just as we might not identify us having anything in common with other people we come across in our life. But what's amazing about this story is that you see that Jesus is not judging her. Jesus is sitting with her and listening to her. Right, A person he has nothing culturally in common with. The Samaritans and Jews were culturally totally opposed. They actually claim to have the same heritage, but different religious practices, different temples, right? So these were, these were two races that a hundred years later would actually break out in riots and the Romans would have to shut them down and put them in their corners. These people are not cool with each other, right? And he's coming up to one of them and he's engaging with her and listening to her and loving her. And he is looking for the things that they have in common. He's, he's starting with those things. Would you give me a drink? Here's two people at the middle of the day when you would never get water, right? And her reaction to him is so interesting. She says, she says, she starts the way that you would expect, right? She says, the Samaritan woman said, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John explains to us what we need to know. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, right? So she, she's saying, why on earth are you doing this? His actions give her pause. His, his actions are such that it begs a question. He's doing something a little bit differently. And, and his disciples have at this point have gone, right? So they're not even around. So it's just one man talking to one woman, and he's a rabbi, he's a teacher from, from a different sect, from a different people, right? Why are you doing this? And Jesus answered, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, the, the literal translation of the word living water 
is actually fresh spring water, right? Which doesn't seem quite as crazy for somebody to say, right? If somebody sat down and said, I would, if you knew who it was that asked for your GP, you would have asked him and he would have given you fresh spring water. But it's also pretty weird. Like here's a guy in a dry place with this deep well. This well goes 100 feet deep, they think. This is like a really deep well that you have to like put it way down in there to get anything. You would have asked me, a guy with carrying no bucket, carrying no water for fresh spring water. Right? That's what he's calling it. And, and so she's going, fresh spring water. Right? What is this guy talking about? Why, why is he telling me he's going to give me fresh spring water? But, in, but interestingly, we know, if we look later in the, in the Gospel of John, we know from this word choice that he is using, he, he's, he's implying something much greater, right? If we go to John chapter 7, you don't have to turn there right now, I'll just read it to you. Verse 37 through 39, he identifies what this fresh spring water is. He says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water, this fresh spring water, will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of kind of knowing what this living water thing is. And so we get to look back, but, but we have to put ourselves in that place with her and with Jesus before he's even announced this publicly, what this is, and say, Jesus is this expert with double meanings, right? He both means, I will give you fresh spring water, and I will give you the Spirit. He's meaning them both simultaneously, and she's just hearing, you're going to give me this fresh spring water, right? Okay, well, this well's like 100 feet deep. I don't know how good the water tasted in that well. You know, that's probably what she's thinking. What do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean by this? And she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this fresh spring water? Verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? So she's basically saying, do you have a better sight than this? This is a holy sight, right? Do you, do you have something better than this? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So now we get to the meat, right? What Jesus is talking about is obviously something supernatural, right? And at this point, the woman's going to be confused and intrigued, and it's all going to depend on how Jesus is telling this to her, right? Jesus is telling this to her in a loving, loving way. And what's running through her head, right, the backstory for her, as we'll know in just a minute, is all of the things in her life that are not going the way that she wanted, right? And here's a man who's promising her something supernatural, A spring of water that will flow out of her. So good that it will flow out of her. And she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's unhappy, right? She's unhappy and she wants change. 
That's what this comes down to. She says, this is confusing. You're a rabbi. You're clearly talking about something mystical here. But I'm open, right? My life has not gone well, and I'm open to something new. And I think what we have to look at here is we have to say, she's at a place where she's realized that the meaning that she is looking for, the life that she's living, the fact that she's here in broad daylight having to get this water, that, that there is negative voices in her head that are just going over and over and telling her how horrible she is. And she's just started to accept them. She's just started to believe them. And here's a man who's beginning to engage with her. What does he want? Verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. There's the curt reply, right? If go back to that dinner conversation. There's that curt reply that says, don't go any further. I don't have a husband, right? I don't have a husband, Jesus. You're getting too close for comfort here. I know you're trying to help me, but this is too close. Have you ever been in a conversation where you intend to help somebody, and then as you're getting right to where you know that you need to be in the conversation, they begin to deflect like crazy, right? They start talking about the weather. They ask you how your latest trip was. or They just start anything they can do. They laugh and kind of just like look at the table. Like whatever it is that they're doing to deflect because they don't want to go there. This is a woman who it hurts to go there. Especially with this wise man, right? That, that seems to love her. That seems to, to want to know her. And she says, I have no husband. It also tells us a little bit about her narrative, right? I'm tired of talking about this. I don't want to talk about this to you anymore. I'm just tired of having this life script. I'm tired of waking up every day and having this happen again, right? I don't want to deal with this. But Jesus doesn't stop there, which would be my tendency, right? Your tendency in this conversation would be to say, okay, we're in, sure, we'll talk about what you want to talk about. No, Jesus, in love, keeps pushing. He says, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man who you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. See, I've read that so often as a condemnation. I think that has a lot to do with my upbringing. Right? The way I view Jesus, the way I view faith. I view that as, you're right when you say you're not a husband. You had five husbands. How many of you guys have read it that way? I, I have read it that way, where I think, man, Jesus. How, how is it that she's responding? This is a miracle that she's even responding to. That. But no, you guys, he is saying, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. You've had five. It's true. Right? He's, he's just letting it sit and settle into the conversation. This is the way Jesus does things. He sits down and he grapples with it and he listens. And she says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. And she begins to deflect again. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that this is a place where we... She just starts talking about like ritual. Like, answer this question for me. It's just anything so I don't have to talk about the five husbands I have and why I'm at this well right now. Anything, Jesus. I don't want to talk about it. She's beginning to understand that there's something special, enticing, supernatural, and it scares her. 
It scares her and she doesn't want to have to reckon with it. She knows that her biography that she's writing is not the biography she wants to write and it scares her to even think about changing it, disrupting it, facing it. So she's deflecting. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. For you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. He actually theologically sort of answers her question, but then he just keeps going, right? For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now, and has now come when the true worshipers, the true worshipers, excuse me, will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So what he's saying is, Forget about the whole conversation, right? Worship is about being integrated, having a whole spirit, being in truth to yourself, recognizing who you are. It's okay that we're facing who you are. In fact, let's start there. We need to get there first. And I don't know if you've heard this phrase, but your system is perfectly designed to create the results you are currently putting out. Right? Your system is currently designed to give the results you are getting. That's all Jesus is doing. He's saying, look, I'm just going to sit here and I'm not going to leave until we can come to a place where you realize the system that you've built of your life, the book you're writing, the chapter you're on, the paragraph you're in, is perfectly designed for the book to end the way you don't want it to end. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to start changing Jesus isn't condemning her in any other way that she has already condemned herself. He's just accepting what she already knows, that her search for meaning has come up empty over and over and over again. To the point where, where she has gone to a totally different well to just avoid the gossip and the jeering and the looks or the ignoring while all of the other women that come out in the morning around the watering hole and talk and catch up on their families and their life and have communities and demean her, right? She, she's just so tired of that. And Jesus knows that she faces that every single day. He can see it in her face, in her demeanor, because he knows to, in order to come out this far to this well, you're an outcast. I know what it's like to be an outcast. I know what it's like to be misunderstood. I get you. When Jesus encounters us in our life story, he's saying, I get you, I know what it's like, trust me, I've lived it. Because how many of us in our day-to-day life feel like an outcast? We feel like a phony. We feel like we don't fit in. Someday the jig's just going to be up and everybody's going to find out, right? Or that try as we might, read the biographies we want to read, read the news, get inspired, try and pursue the things we're pursuing. It's not working out the way we imagined it, Right? And we just can't find a way to make ourselves fit in with the world. We so desperately want to fit in and have meaning and be loved. Jesus gets that. And he has an answer for that. And I think this is a really important part of the story where we have to understand that before Jesus, we live with the biography. It could be the most amazing. It could be Steve Jobs' biography, right? could be Michelle Obama, these incredible biographies that inspire us, but we have to realize is all of these biographies end in death, and that's it. That their pursuit of meaning, at the last day, Steve Jobs was just grappling with so many things. He had it all, 
And he's still grappling with the fundamental questions of meaning. And Jesus says, you have to understand that all of that is pointless. You're wasting all of the words that you write down on your page every day. If you don't grasp the end result of everything here, let me tell you what it is. That's where he's going here. He's saying, it's not what the Jews told you. It's not what the Samaritans told you. Worship is none of that. Being in the presence of God is none of that. Let me tell you what it is. God is spirit. And you can worship in spirit and in truth. And I will tell you how. Verse 25. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. So she's been promised that there will be meaning. That there's an end that has meaning that is coming. So imagine how powerful it is that in her life pursuit, everything that she's after, the perfect bi biography that she's looking to read that will actually explain what she needs to know to live her life is standing in front of her when Jesus says, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. You guys might say, well, I don't, I don't grapple with the Messiah, the Christ. Yes, I hear the word Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, what does that mean? What is our Messiah in our life? We all have one. And it's not Jesus for all of us. What's our Messiah? What do you wake up pining for? What do you wake up knowing if you had it, you would have, you feel like you would have meaning and everything would be okay? What do you get jealous and envious of? Right? What do you desire to be okay? That's your Messiah. Right? I forget if I talked about this last week, but Tim Keller has this sermon where he talks about how our sins take us to certain clusters. And he calls one an achievement cluster. So some of us have this sin where what we go to is achievements. And we say, if I finally have those achievements, if I finally get a promotion in my job, if I finally get this salary, if I finally have this following, then I'll have it. Some of us go to relationships. If I finally get married, if I finally, if my, my husband finally loves me for who I am, or my wife finally loves me for who I am, or if my parents finally accept me, then I'll be happy. And some of us have emotional achievements, emotional clusters, where we go, if I can just feel okay, right? If I can just be okay in my own skin, right? And, and so we all have these different clusters that we go to. Those are our messiahs. We've placed our life meaning on those messiahs. And she says, I've been promised there's some kind of meaning, but I don't really get it. And when he comes, I've been promised he'll explain everything, but I've been told he, that it's not explained now. And he says, that's not true. It's explained right now in front of you. The meaning is right here. The end of your story is right here looking at you in the face. That's who I am. And right at this, right at this pivotal moment, the disciples just kind of like come bumbling back and interrupt everything, right? We're at like the moment where it's going to be like the epiphany. And the disciples are like, hey, we got some food. Hey, we're ready to eat. And they like look over and everyone just gets quiet because there's like a Samaritan woman staying over there. And she takes the cue and she just leaves. Jesus didn't have to do anything more than that. What she does is she goes into the city and she can't help herself. She can't help herself because she actually believes that I found the meaning. Finally, my, insecures have been, my insecurities have been completely known. The thing I didn't want anyone to know, this man saw and he told me, it's okay. I'm the thing you've been looking for. I'm the person you can sit with and talk with without makeup on, right? I'm the person that... that that, that you can talk to without getting your home to look a certain way first before you have me over. 
right? That can see how you are with your kids when you would never want anyone, when you turn Alexa off because you don't want to hear it shouting at your kids, right? I've done that, by the way. That's why I'm saying that. See, you know, who can see your personal budget, who you could actually show your savings account to, and they wouldn't judge you. He says, he actually talks about this in John 3.16, right? We all know the verse John 3.16. It's like, you know, for God so loved the world. What we don't know is right after that, he says he didn't come to bring condemnation. Do you know why? Because Jesus just sits down with us and we bring all the condemnation onto ourselves. The reason we don't want to share any of those things is we've already condemned ourselves. And without Jesus, there's no way out of it. Jesus is not some domineering, overbearing God figure that's going to bar the gates of heaven from you and say, how dare you didn't do these five things that you were supposed to do. Your, your life is condemnation without him. That's the difference. And finally, she gets to a place where she's met somebody at the well who doesn't treat her like she expected. And, and she goes to these people and she says, come and see. Come and see a man who told me that all that I ever did. And what she's really saying there is, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did, who knows everything about me and still loves me. That's what she means. My life now is not about my biography. It's about somebody else's. See, the, the end meaning of her story needs to have another person's story in it because that's where the meaning is. Now, I'll explain this in a different way because this really hit me this week. N.T. Wright writes this book called The Scripture and the Authority of God. And basically what he's saying is he's saying the, the Bible is in five acts. There's the creation, right, which is like Genesis 1, 2, and then there's the fall, Genesis Act 2. So the first act's like really short. And then there's the fall, then there's Israel, which is like pretty much the whole Bible, and then there's Jesus, Act 4, and then there's Act 5, the church. Well, we would like to think that the Bible is this sort of Shakespearean five-act plan. It's all contained in the Bible. What he says is here's the thing. Act 5 is still going, right? Act 5 just starts in the New Testament. It kicks off Act 5. We're living in Act 5. Right? We know where Act 5 ends, though. We have the beginning, the establishment of the church, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is in us. We are living in Act 5. We're in the presence of God like we will be in heaven because we're living in Act 5 of the story. Our biography is not our own to write. We're living in a story with an ending. Right? Revelation gives us the ending of Act 5, but between Revelation and everything else, there's just this interminable gap. You know? And we're living in that. He says, think of it like improv. So how many of you guys like improv? I know you guys like improv. Is anybody else familiar with improv? Have you ever done improv? Okay. You know that show, Whose Line Is It Anyways? Is that dating me? By the way, Drew Carey is now the host for The Price is Right, which is like so wacky. Um, Whose Line Is It Anyway, right? I remember watching that show, and then I remember getting into improv. I loved improv. But what's what on the fundamental rules of improv? You, you, have to, you have to follow the game. There's different games, right? You, you, like the, the rules of the game will be you have to toss the ball and then you have to pretend it's a new object and shape out in your hands what it is and then give it to the next person. And you know, like you'll have these different rules for the improv game. If you don't follow the rules, you're not really doing anything that's gonna be funny to anybody. 
You're going to tick off all the other actors. Nobody's going to figure out how to, how to get this thing to end, how to get it to work, because it's chaos. And what he's saying is, we have a lot of room for improv in Act 5, you guys. We're all improv players in Act 5 of the Bible, of the church. But there's ground rules. And there's a beginning to the play, and there's an end to the play. And if you don't live in continuity and in step with that, then you're going to be totally unfulfilled and nothing's going to really work out the way you wanted it to work out. And when you get to the end, it's no wonder the acting coach is going to be like, yeah, that didn't work. Yeah, that didn't work. I gave you the end and I gave you the beginning and you didn't follow any of the steps. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Like you knew. You had the beginning. You had the ending. What happened? Right? Like when we see it that way, we real, to me it has a different sense of living. Like a different sense of living in the spirit. What am I doing? I need to know the Bible because I need to know all of the rules for my life so that I can live my life out in this period of grace God's given me to, to use my gifts. We have all these spiritual gifts to use. He, uh, improv doesn't work if everybody's the same kind of personality. What makes improv a joy is that you have all these different actors with different heights and builds and, and demeanors and they're just so funny together. Because they're playing in the milieu, in the mold of that story. With a common intention, with a common purpose, united as a team to get from point A to point B. And in that process, they make everybody laugh, right? They do hysterical things and they work. Our, our life is a joy and it works and it brings peace and it brings loving and belonging because we're on this team. Acting out. Act five of the story. And it's also really telling here that she goes and she says, come, look at a man who told me everything. Come and see. Look at a man who told me everything I ever did. Nobody drank any water. Did you realize that? Jesus was thirsty and didn't drink anything. And she offered her living water and she didn't drink an ounce of anything. She drank his words. And they quenched all of her thirst. She wasn't thirsty anymore. He wasn't thirsty anymore. They accomplished what they were out to do. She drank up his words and it filled her up and she just started going. Which is exactly what he said she would do, right? When my spirit comes into you, you will be like a living wellspring. The spring will gush out of you. So I did a little USGS geological service study on springs, right? How do springs work, right? Springs are when like rain comes down, right? Or things come down from rain into the water, into the soil, and then they hit a certain level of the bedrock that they can't go through. And so they just slide down until a point at which they, they meet the surface of the soil and they come out and they come bubbling up, right? And so there's a source for the water. When he says you're a wellspring, a fresh spring water, your life will be a wellspring. He's saying you will become a vessel for the source, for the true story. When your biography meets the divine story, you will be like a wellspring. You won't have to worry about where the water's coming from. It will just come out of you. And that comes to our last, last point, which I just really want to make clear. The Samaritan woman is the ultimate outcast. And yet when she comes to other people, all she has to say is, come and see this person. 
Not come and see me. You guys, when we talk to our community, when we talk about our church, when we talk about God, when we talk about Christianity, what, what they're really asking for is for us to say, come and see somebody that told me everything I ever did and still loves me, and they'll do the same for you. Right? I just want you to come and meet Jesus with me. And by doing that, we're becoming Jesus. By, by being the outcast, by having nothing to prove. So in verse 39 through 42, it ends by saying that they said, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So what it proves is anybody who encounters Jesus has the opportunity to find their life's Messiah. And what you need to know is this. You need to know that everybody you encounter is wanting and searching for a Messiah. Every single person. And so when you sit down with them, try and find out what it is. Right? Make that a process for you. Say, I'm going to listen. I'm going to hear from you. I'm going to be an outcast with you. I'm going to be there with you. Wherever you're at in life, I'm going to be there with you. Can we find out what you're worshiping? And if it's not Jesus, can I tell you what he's done to me? So it doesn't have to be rocket science. But it's so clear that the immediate outpouring of her encounter with truly experiencing Jesus is that she has to say, come and see. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would truly believe that throughout our week, no matter the ins and outs, no matter the the to-do lists or the loneliness or the things not going at all the way we wanted our life script, our biography to go, that we're writing pages that we think are just useless, Lord, that we would see because we are worshiping you, you're bringing them to an ending that has meaning and purpose and value, God. I pray that each day we would realize that we are in the presence of you and you are working in us no matter how insignificant it would seem that you would bring us value and purpose, God. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. As Michael comes up and uh, leads us again, we have the privilege to take communion. Right? Communion is a memory where Jesus said, I ask for you to really take in bread and wine as an experience of my presence, a literal experience. Right? I want you to do this so that you remember I'm a real person that really died for you, that my, my body was really broken for you. I was an outcast to the point of being hunted down and killed for you. And when you take and you eat of the bread and when you dip it in the cup, which you can do individually today, that you would just yearn to know and experience him today in this room in a way that you haven't been able to see him before. That you would see in this space, in this physical space that it's created by him, that you're meant to be here right now, and that he's asking of you to do something with what you know and what you have and what he's given you. Ask him what that is today. Give him your total faith. Let go of everything that's getting in the way for you today. Thank you.